Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. Our partner for this year, our show is Lacole the fastest growing cycling apparel manufacturer in the world. They kit out Byron McLaren in World Tour, and we're going to see Byron McLaren maybe getting with a rider on a breakaway in tomorrow's stage. We'll talk about that uh, when we preview stage nine of the Giro. But Lacole have got some pretty good deals on at the moment. If you want to check them out at www.lacole.cc for the change of season, whether you're in, you're in Europe or in the Southern Hemisphere, um, we're going into summer at the moment, so I've got to get some extra summer kit now. I've got that coming on my way. I'm re-upping, uh, getting a new drop from Lacole. So go and check that out. Thanks, as always, for Lacole partnering with our Giro show, making it possible for us to bring you this stage-by-stage coverage. But on to Stage 8, from Giovinazzo to Vieste, Gargano, well, 211km or 201-kilometer stage, and pancake flat for the first 90Ks, then a cat to Monte Sant'Angelo, 9.4Ks at 6.2%. Intermediate sprint at the base of that climb, then it changes drastically, the, the profile. So they were they stay on the coast, but then it becomes much more rugged as they go into the Parco Nazionale del Gargano and rolling climbs all day for their last... Ooh, 76 k's of the stage when they finished the descent of that category two sort of 1.6 k's five percent 2.8 k's 5.6 percent the hardest steepest one the via saragat 1k at 9.1 percent with 25 k's to go just before the last intermediate sprint that's where we thought maybe bora would put pressure on demar etc they'd have to try and drop him there um but yeah that was the profile I didn't think it was too bad a profile, actually, and I'm not going to be too critical of the organisers for having it on a Saturday. But how did the race shape up, Benji? Because it, we're not going to lie to you guys, it was a bit of a snoozer. We had a um, pretty mediocre breakaway getaway from the start. Ravanelli for Androni. We had Roshkov for CCC, so a bit of a time trial type that can do healing as well. Brentler, very similar in that for as well Startup Nation to get away with teammate Alex Dauser time trialist, and not as amazing on the hills. Matt Holmes, probably one of the two best climbers in this breakaway. He is at Lotto Sudal, was great in Tireno with breakaways as well. So I was always looking forward to him in the Giro and hoping that he could steal a stage away somewhere. And today he was in the breakaway together with Pucho as well for Ineos Grenadiers. Pucho being a rider that was always in the Tour de France teams and so forth and Giro teams of Ineos with Chris Froome and... A lot of people don't know how important Pucho was in certain years. And I think Froome came out with an interview section about one, two weeks ago, where he spoke about how important Pucho was for him and what an underrated domestique he is for the team that he was in at that point. So 
yeah, I, I was surprised to hear that because as myself, I don't really notice Pucho much in those races because he's not really there for the mountains for Ineos. So he's mainly there as probably bottle jobs and just main domestique tasks, maybe a road captain a tiny bit. But I don't think he is experienced enough for that. I don't know. I generally don't know. Either way, Pucho being in the breakaway together with Holmes, probably the two best climbers in this breakaway group. And directly it was noticeable that the peloton just didn't care at the start. So they let the breakaway go before that climb out to like 13 minutes or something obscene, 12 minutes, I can't remember, um, before Quickstep just started pacing to pretty much stop the winner of the stage going into the Malia Rosa. And pacing's a strong word for what Quickstep were doing. Um, but I think it makes sense why a lot of the teams did what they did, particularly FDJ. So FDJ, they got three stage wins already for DeMar. They, if they spend a lot of energy pacing, maybe they don't have the firepower then at the end to help DeMar get back on if he does get distanced by 300, 400 metres on that that sort of one kilometre, 9.1% climb. So this is the hardest stage of the sprint ish stages and for for someone like him so why would they be the ones bringing back a breakaway and i think if you're the director sportif of fdj and arno demar comes to you this morning and says hey i want to rest on my laurels today and take it easy um i've already bagged you three stage wins i think you have to let him have the day off if he wants to and you could see the fdj guys laughing when they were speaking to the other riders in the peloton today they they already collected some pretty sweet bonuses, that team. So, yeah, why work on a day all day in, on the, you know, in the sun and on the flat when Matthews at Sunweb, Sagan at Bora weren't really willing to pick up the, the chase or UAE? So UAE, again, okay, so they work and try and bring it back for Gavidia, but then he'll probably get dropped on that climb too based on his current form. And then it's not hard enough for Diego Ulisi to win the finale. He's not beating Sagan in that finale. So why would UAE pace? And maybe they're a little bit, McNulty's looked a little bit off, etc. So, yeah, I can't really see them committing. It's not quick step, I think, were tired from the crosswinds yesterday. You know, that, that took a lot of energy, what they were doing yesterday in the crosswinds. And they got Almeida and Malia Rosa. They're getting some publicity there. They probably don't back Ballerini, really, or Hodge to be beating Sagan in a sprint like this. And who am I missing? Sunweb. So Sunweb, I don't really know. I guess Kelderman's their main priority rather than Matthews. Uh, It would be my main priority, to be honest. Kelderman can podium on GC in this year's Giro d'Italia. And if, if you require three other teams to cooperate with you, I've already struck off FDJ and UAE, then maybe you'll... Yeah, you don't really have the firepower to bring it back. You don't have the big units like Casper Pedersen and Case Bowl, etc., to work for you on the flat. And then Bora, well, they don't have that many engines either. They got Bodnar, okay, um, he's fairly strong, but Micah, who else? Um, Conrad Polianski, they're not that great engines on the flat either. Fabro, not a monstrous flat engine. So they don't have the firepower too. So if they need help from someone else and Sagan's going to be the favourite for the stage, that's why no one would really help them. So it is kind of logical. So if that's all happening, the solution is send a rider in the breakaway. So 
Bora's mistake was not sending Benedetti into the breakaway. He won a stage in the Giro last year, pretty much exactly the same profile as today. And from a breakaway, a larger breakaway than today, and a stronger one too, he won that stage. And that's how you mitigate something like this happening if the other teams refuse to cooperate with you. Sunweb, I think, missed a trick and did the same and, and should have done the same thing um, today. When I look at who they could have sent, oh, Jai Hindley, nah, probably a bit too close on GC. Anyone really? Chad Hager. Why didn't Sunweb Benji send someone like Chad Hager? Or did I miss something? Was there a fierce fight for the breakaway at the start? And these riders were trying to get in the break. No, I actually didn't really see any proper fight for the breakaway at the start. It's mainly that I think these teams were expecting that eventually some cooperation would end up happening, but that clearly wasn't the case. And I think within the stage, I noticed that I think it was Bora who was asking a Groupama rider whether they would work or not, and he started laughing. So uh, yeah, that uh, that pretty much explains the standpoint of FDG on this and they were clearly not planning to work so I think Groupama is already happy with the three stage wins they have so indeed like you said Sunweb and, and Boron need to find a way to pull a stage like this their way putting someone in the breakaway like you said or just actually working together either would work but I think the second one would be less beneficial working together because you'd probably be bringing the march to the finish line once again so yeah, it's a bit of a hard situation. I think indeed, like you say, that sending someone in the breakaway would put the riders in the peloton in a perfect golden throne and they would be left from having to work. And additionally, they'd have someone in the running for the stage if it comes down to a breakaway. And I felt that those were also the only teams that have incentive for a stage like this. GC riders aren't going to do it. There was a certain point in the race where that kind of changed. We saw a small hill on which Nibali pulled to the front with Trek Segafredo and actually started hitting quite high into the uh, gap that was made on the breakaway because I think it went down from like 11 to 12 until a good eight and a half minutes at a certain point because Trek was pacing and there was a bit of a controversial moment there. We had Jakob Fulsang being victim of a mechanical and he was left behind 40 seconds or so behind the peloton this was during trek pacing so trek just continued pacing and there's people who are against this there's people who are for this i'm personally of the opinion that well it's a race so i don't care but if i have to look with empathy at this then i feel trek was already pacing before the mechanical happened and therefore yeah it's not there problem i don't see people in the tour de france either waiting for people but i feel like nibali has a bit of an unfair bias against him on that but also because he's already known for sometimes doing some dirty moves and because of that he's probably more likely to be attacked for a move like this to continue pacing while someone with a mechanical is behind and therefore is yeah more attacked i guess do you have a different standpoint on that or do you believe that you shouldn't pace if someone's behind, or what's your take on that? The rule doesn't exist anymore. Richie Port had a mechanical in a 500-meter gravel section in the Tour de France that shouldn't have been there and was there as a gimmick, and Enric Mas put his nose in the wind for the first time in three weeks just because Port had a mechanical, and no one said shit except me. 
So the rule doesn't exist. And Port was a GC podium contender. So it's just Trek were pacing beforehand and they kept pacing. They didn't, they had the option to stop pacing to allow Full Sang to get back on, but they're not compelled to do so. So, I mean, I don't care. I want there to be beef between Full Sang and Nibali. That'd be, just makes for better entertainment. You know, it's, I want to see riders getting stuck into each other. I love what Sagan's been saying after the races, him and Damar having a bit of beef. It just adds a little, an extra element because this is ultimately entertainment. I don't want these guys to all be robots. Um, the UFC, etc. they've mastered the art of marketing the pre-fight, post-fight, press conference, all that sort of stuff. We don't need to go to that level, but we don't need these guys to be wooden characters either. And I think some of the pacing i think nibley i think he did know what he was doing knew what he was doing there benji uh, i think he i think trek knew what they were doing um so i love it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah what when did the race really kick off for the breakaway benji um it was probably in the last 35 40 kilometers or so yes so you spoke about it before the last 40 ish kilometers has twice a circuit with one proper hill on it the via saragat and we got to keep in mind, everybody's still in the breakaway. And we know that two riders are the strongest climbers here. That is Matt Holmes and Pucho. They came to the Via Saragat the first time around with the whole group. And on that climb, we noticed that two people were getting a bit of distance on the rest. Firstly, Dowsett was off the back. He was on a bit of a gap. The next riders to drop was Ravanelli and Brentle. And eventually, the leftovers were Holmes and Pucho. But... The difference from the first riders to the last riders was not significant. And eventually everything came back together after the first Via Saragat. But you got to keep in mind, if Dowsett and Brentlin know that they are not the best climbers, they got to try something different. And they sure did because someone went off the front. Well, it was the old one too, using the numerical advantage, despite probably not having, or definitely not having, the strongest climbers in the group, Puccio and Holmes were clearly the strongest climbers in the group with Roskopf maybe the third strongest. And Brandl went, he got brought back He after he'd been dropped. And then Dowsett, who'd kind of lost the wheel after Brandl had attacked, then countered with like pretty slowly, but like it wasn't some crazy, I think when Gilbert, BMC did this, okay? I'll try and remember the stage when BMC um, did this with Philip Gilbert. I made the video years ago. Um, it was like a 2017, February 14th, 2017. I know I'm getting sidetracked. Um, Giro d'Italia 2015, stage 18, exactly the same tactics, 22Ks to go. They, uh, BMC had a rider up the road. He attacked. Gilbert was kind of off the back or bridging and then attacked. ISU did exactly the same thing here today. It was very, very impressive tactics from them. I mean, we knew they had to do it, but you still got to execute it. Dowsett goes off the front. It seemed like Puccio and uh, Holmes and Roscoff weren't really expecting it. And... Yeah, he just immediately made it to like 25, 35 seconds. And it's not just about, okay, who's got the best watts? And then, okay, well, he's got 5% better watts, so he's going to win. It's like, well, they literally weren't pedaling for a a minute chasing Dowsett because they were kind of tired chasing Brandl. And then Holmes and Puccio and Roskopf are looking at each other like, well, if I chase 
and you're on my wheel, then I'm going to more, be more likely to lose because I'm giving up more energy while you're getting a draft off me. So even if I bring back Dowsett, I'm going to be stuffed for the finale. And so that indecision when they're looking at each other gets in the 30-second gap. And then Brandle was doing a really, really good job messing up that chase. I mean, if you got if you go and watch the last 25Ks or so, he did a fantastic job. He's just sitting second wheel all day and not obviously not pulling it through, just messing up the continuity of Ross Cobb and Holmes and Puccio chasing. And, yeah, just really good job from Brandle. Eventually he did get dropped, I think, with like, oh, 15 k's to go maybe or the last major climb he got shelled really quickly the gap was like 52 seconds uh great britain was obviously going crazy thinking dowsett's got this one in the bag and then puccio and Holmes started attacking each other on the climb and they put about 30 seconds into that gap in about 15 seconds they literally warped time and that was the concern for Dowsett and Brendel. That's why their strategy of attacking early before the climb was obviously the correct one. They got two time trialists and not the strongest climbers. If they were in that group in the climb, Puccio and Holmes would have gapped them pretty badly. Um, and then, they had, yeah, they probably would have been done for. And then 25 seconds, I think Holmes and Puccio didn't really, they started working together over the crest, but they didn't really gain any time on Dowsett on the descent. And then onto the flat, Dowsett in TT, mock TT position with a 30-second gap or 25-second gap. Puccio and Holmes and Roscoff relaying, chasing hard, but they didn't gain any time on him. In fact, he put more time into the Malik's Dowsett, the man without a World Tour contract the next year before today's stage. And you probably know him from uh, his YouTube channel. He's quite popular. Um, seems a pretty likable guy, etc. I've spoken to him. He's pretty, pretty friendly guy, actually, and personable. And, yeah, he won this stage and couldn't believe it over the line by a big margin, too, going away from the, the trio relaying behind him. And, yeah, really emotional victory for Alex Dowsett. Um, did you – was there anything you thought Puccio and Roskopf could have done Differently, Benji, I think they actually did a pretty good job except for missing, I guess, the initial attack from Dowsett. Yeah, I think that that is the only thing you can really pull away from Pucho's game. Um, Roshkopf was not really the strongest in that group anyway, so I don't feel like he's to blame either really for that. Maybe, yeah, just a reaction that was necessary, but in general, just a, a brilliant move by by ISN, the whole squad, because Brentle did really well in stopping the chase behind. So very good teamwork on that as well. And in general, Dowsett might not have had the energy on the climb itself, but we know he's a time trialist. And if you put him against a group that does not cooperate overly well in the last two kilometers, then you're going to have him right away even more. And he had enough of a gap on the climb, so kept it up. So wonderful victory, maybe a bit uncontested because... Let's be honest, this is one of the more uncontested stage wins I've seen in a Grand Tour in years, probably. But that doesn't take away from the fact that Dowsett just won a Giro stage. Like, it's the other riders' fault that they don't contest it. So I'll take it if I'm in a position like Dowsett, and I'll gladly flex I won a Giro stage if I'm him. So I, uh, I don't mind. And also the additional fact that, like you said, the emotional interview... He's a really honest person, and because of that, I've got a lot of empathy for him. 
he was talking about the fact that he was unsure about his future by not having a contract next year and having a kid on the way and having to take care of the whole household with his wife as well. Just in general, that really made him stressed about his future. And it's it's lovely to see that he is able to get a zero stage win and potentially a uh, another contract maybe in Walter again next year accordingly. I personally not sure if this stage win really pushes towards World Tour validity. I don't know about that. I'm in doubt there since it was a bit uncontested, but still it's a Giro stage and he did it. So he deserves to celebrate a bit, to be honest. See, I, I do actually think this changes my perception of him for a World Tour contract next year. And I would sign Dowsett on the proviso that he gave away the TT bike. And he, yeah, sure, he's allowed to focus on it for stages in races, etc. But no more peaking for European champs, British national champs, world champs, because look at what he can do in road races. And I know it looked uncontested today, but why didn't other riders get in the breakaway? We're stage eight into a Grand Tour after the first week, end of the first week. That's been pretty tiring. Maybe other riders just didn't want it today. They didn't want to get in the break. And he actually got went in and got in that breakaway. So it looks uncontested, but I guess you still got to get in the break to actually win it. And I think if you're the fifth to 10th best time trial rider in the world, and realistically, he doesn't have a shot of beating, of winning world championships and even getting on the podium in the next, in his future, doesn't look very likely with Ghana, Kung, Lafanat, Dennis. So the list goes on and on. It, the level is insane. I think he's better off focusing on being a road captain. He's still got good watts over one hour, very solid world tour level watts over one hour to do a job as a road captain. He can do lead outs. He's been doing decent lead outs for ISU, I think, in Toronto as well. They're particularly good. And he can win stages as a breakaway artist, like a stage like today. Or he can get into breakaways with an even stronger rider, like, oh, I'm trying to think, like Craddock did with uh, Kaithedo. I, I really like it when teams put a an engine like Ineos did with Carapaz and Kwiatkowski stage 18. Like Ghana with <laughs> Yeah, well, that, that, I was going to use that example, but that kind of didn't work the way it was supposed to. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, when Dylan Van Baal and Castroviejo went in the break in stage 18, La roche Ferrand, and then they ensure the breakaway gets a big margin. So I think Dowsett's got a lot of uses for a World Tour team if you use him right, if he if he accepts being used in, in that way. And I think he might be more open to that, I guess, if after today because um, he'd be like, shit, I can win. I can win Grand Tour stages and that's got to be better than the disappointment that seems to be have been coming for him and Campanarts a lot um, in a lot of these time trial championships. I guess we see that more acutely with them because they both – um, publish it on social media. So I'm very happy for Alex Dowsett. And I think Israel Startup Nation's first ever World Tour win, which is crazy. So good for them as well. And they did a really good job on the breakaway today, getting two strong time trial guys in that break. Any last thoughts on this stage, Benji, before we preview stage nine? Yeah, it was a bit of a boring stage in general, but I'm glad that it's taken away by a rider that I appreciate it a lot, and I hope that tomorrow's stage is a bit more interesting throughout it because 
goodness sake, I literally almost fell asleep during the stage, and that doesn't happen to me ever. So this was next level. Anyway, next stage, we've got a pretty interesting one, in my honest opinion. San Salvo to Rocarasso, a mountain finish, but it's not an ordinary mountain finish where you have a climb in the end that is just straight up. I have the feeling that I can count the last half of this race as one climb. In total, we start off with a pretty flat section. I can't call it pancake flat. Someone called it out that we always call it pancake flat. So it's a carpaccio flat section at the start, leading up towards an intermediate sprint about 75 kilometers in the stage. A bit of uphill before the intermediate sprint probably won't matter because the brake will be gone at that point, I would be guessing. But then we start the first climb of the day, the Paso Lanciano, the first categorized one at least. 7%, 12.4 kilometers, a huge downhill towards literally the middle of the stage, the feeding zone, and then we start going uphill towards the line. But the last 100-ish kilometers, 117 kilometers, something like that, is, well, it's 100 kilometers, is existing out of three climbs. We've got, first of all, a climb of about, that's crazy, like 38 kilometers, but knowing that there's a small plateau section of like five kilometers in there, the Paso San Leonardo, it says to be, 14.4 kilometers, but it doesn't really count much of the climb, in my honest opinion, 4.3%. That section is not steep. Let's pay, make that clear here. That section, this whole section is not steep. 4% average. Go downhill at that point until a good 170 kilometers into the race, so at about 37 kilometers to go. That downhill section is about oof, 15 kilometers downhill, something like that. And then we start climbing again to Bosco di Sant'Antonio, 9.4 kilometers at 5.1%. Then a plateau section with an intermediate sprint, so potentially seconds to offer at 191 kilometers. So that's a long plateau section of like 20k. And then we start climbing to the finish line with Rocca Rosso as a finish, which is 9.6 kilometers at 4.4%. So that is a bit of a misconception. If you look closer at the uh, finish, we've got a very steep last 200-ish meters. I would say 600-ish meters even because we start at Rocarasso finish with a 4.9 percentage. It gets up to about 6.5-ish. Then we've got a plateau section in the middle of that climb. So you can basically say the two kilometers in the middle of that 9.6 kilometer climb is basically flat. And then it's ramping up towards the finish line with a finish of like 12-ish percent. So, yeah, the steeper it gets towards the end, that is certainly sure. That's going to be one hell of a punch. And because of that last section, I think that Nibali might have trouble on this one. I said it before, this is a finish where I see the likes of Fulsang maybe having a better result than Nibali. But personally, I do not hope that is the case. We haven't really seen a difference between the two riders yet. So, yeah, I'm hoping that we see some differences I do have the feeling that the break might just take away this stage. What's your thoughts at the moment? If Attila Valta doesn't get in the breakaway tomorrow, I will be so cranky. Like, he is a stage he can definitely win. I thought he could win on Etna. I thought he could have gone pretty well on stage five. And, yeah, I think a breakaway has a really good chance tomorrow because, once again, the GC teams just don't care. They uh, like Nibali doesn't want to get a stage win. To Nibali's probably not wanting this to come down to like he probably would want the breakaway to mop up the bonus seconds and the bonus at the intermediate sprint and then the bonus seconds at the line. So 
yeah, I think Nibali and Trek wouldn't really mind a breakaway going up the road. So then, what, are Astana going to pace all day or Bora going to pace all day just with Matteo Fabro? I don't... Jumbo Visma, they don't have the same spot as the Tour de France. So, yeah, every day like this, you have to say the breakaway has a pretty good chance. And if you're a half-decent climber, you should be trying to get in that break. So, yeah... De Hent, probably not liking the look, and, look of his legs at the moment. Walter, I just, I keep talking about Walter. Um, and I think he's, yeah, so talented and a good climber. So I'd really like to see him get in the break tomorrow. Valerio Conti might be a good idea to get for them to get him in the break again. Um, see, I mean, he got, he got dropped the other day. So maybe he doesn't have the legs either. We don't know what's happening with Mitchelton Scott now. Obviously with Yates, Having abandoned, uh, we didn't. We forgot to mention that. We'll get to that in a second, uh, so we can get the right timestamp. But yeah, Jack Haig should be freed. If Jack Haig gets in the break, you should be terrified. Uh, not just because he's a friend of the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast, but you saw he was in the break with McNulty, Fulsang, etc., and Andalusia earlier this year, and Lander uh, on a pretty hard stage. I mean, Mitchelton have got to send him in the break tomorrow. It's it makes no sense if they don't. Hamilton's probably. A um, bit too close on GC for him to be allowed to go up the road. Masnada, I don't know where these guys all are on GC. Masnada and Knox haven't liked the look of their legs either. If Miguel Angel Lopez was here, <laughs> I'd be, I wish he was here because that would have made things a lot more exciting. I had Thomas to win this stage in the preview because, like you said, Benji, this sort of finale, Thomas against Fulsang, I thought, at Fulsang second, if it's a GC group, I think Fulsang is winning. But I'm going to go again with a, a long shot pick. Valter with, uh, I don't know where, Bilbao. Bilbao could win the stage, but he's too close on GC. And I'd like to get Mark Padun on the, I'd like him to get the break as well. The Ukrainian talented rider uh, for Barr and McLaren. And obviously he's got a, all the aero benefits of the Lecole kit in the finale, despite it being about 10% the finish, every little bit counts. Who's your pick for tomorrow, Benji? I'm going to give three names because I don't feel like one is enough for a breakaway stage. I'm calling out Guerrero and Simon Clark for eradication first because that team does not have GC to really take care of and can go into the breakaway full force. And I feel like those two riders can definitely do something on this stage. But I would also like to talk about Oh my god, I just lost who I was going to say. Yeah, I'm afraid I forgot. <laughs> oh my... Yeah, I don't know. I forgot the third rider I was going to name. So uh, I guess you can find out on Twitter tonight if I if I realize it again, because I'll put up my pizza slices again. <laughs> yeah, the pizza slices are your... Maybe Victor Campanats, seeing what Dowsett did today, maybe he's like, oh, I've got to get that got to get that credit to a stage win tomorrow. Uh, I presume that was your pick, Benji. I'm um, afraid not. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Tanel Kangut as well, the Estonian breakaway specialist. He could go pretty well. There's just a lot of riders who I think could win this. If this stage was in week three and riders had lost a lot of time on GC, like if Micah had lost a lot of time, you know, you'd be, I'd be picking him for this stage. But he obviously is up there, top 10 on GC. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, a lot of riders I liked have crashed as well, like Full Sang, oh, not Full Sang, Lopez, Thomas, and uh, Luca Wackerman as well. Um, but that stage nine tomorrow, it looks to be a more interesting one for yeah to watch, thankfully, because there's going to be stage win action plus GC action with that long staircase climb. 
But now getting to the major news of the day, which we neglected to mention at the start, we were just so excited by today's stage, which was Simon Yates testing positive for COVID-19 and pulling out of the Giro d'Italia this morning. Uh, La Flamme Rouge tweeted that pretty early today after the Green Edge published a press release. Mitchelton Scott's press release, despite the domain name still being greenedgecycling.com. It's a little bit of an oversight. Uh, Yates withdrawn from Giro d'Italia following positive COVID-19 results. He developed very mild symptoms in the hours following yesterday's seventh stage. Mitchelton Scott requested a rapid COVID test that then returned a positive result. Then the second test also confirmed a positive result. The remaining Mitch and Scott Rise and staff have undergone a rapid test, each returning a negative result. They've been given clearance by the RCS, that's the Giro Race Organiser, to continue racing and as a precaution will undergo further testing in the coming days. Um, we got a few thoughts on this. I think we were, I mean, we can give ourselves a little bit of credit, Benji. We've been beating the drum of what is going on with Simon Yates. This doesn't make sense for the last week since the Etna stage when people have been talking, I think, saying, oh, well, you know, that wasn't that unusual getting dropped on Etna. Simon Yates often has a weird, you know, up and down performance. But he got dropped really early when the pace was really, really easy and there was no other explanation for it. So do you think, Benji, that that is enough cause for concern for them to have given him a, a rapid COVID test. I'm kind of surprised, to be honest, that he's only been tested at the end of stage seven. I would have, if I was team manager, I would have tested him straight away when there's an inexplicably bad performance, when he doesn't have an injury or anything like that. I completely agree with you. And I've got the feeling that in the Giro, the whole bubble system and the safety surrounding COVID is a lot less than at the Tour de France. And maybe I just don't, look into it enough to see what the actual protocols are but i've got the feeling that there are less protocols and that in general the rules that or like the guidelines the health guidelines of covid are not really used properly even considering this covid test if he has covid he has been in the same room with plenty of middleton riders unmasked most likely on the massage tables together in the same room and he probably has a roommate that is currently in the Tour de France, in the Giro. <laughs> wow. Um, I've got the feeling that they're just handling this a bit ignorantly. With a bit too much nonchalance. They, I don't know, and I'm not blaming the riders here at all. I'm sure the riders themselves at Mitchelton are very concerned too. This is something at Aziz. Yeah, sure. They, they're in a pretty low-risk category from, for dying from COVID, obviously. but professional athlete where your lungs are important i'm sure the riders are not exactly stoked on being exposed to covid themselves and um like some of the nba players didn't even want to play because of covid so yeah i feel like i just yeah that that stage three performance was a little bit strange and there was no explanation for it no niggling injury or, or anything and yeah i guess he didn't have symptoms so there wasn't cause for the test it's a real shame for simon yates um, he gets taken out of the Giro through no fault of his own, really. 
because of COVID-19, hope he recovers quickly and comes back stronger than ever next year. I presume this is his season done because the Welter, yeah, the, the Welter starts in a, about 10 days. So big shame for him, and I hope that there's not more of this coming out when the rest day comes around, when they all get tested, because it's only the Mitchelton boys that are getting tested. The rest of the peloton, if they're not showing any symptoms or anything, they're not getting daily tests. It's all on the rest day. So RCS don't really have any rules like the Tour de France does. Uh, as Benji said, he's correct in saying the bubble system is not as strong as the tour system. So we'll wait to see what comes out in the rest day. Hopefully this Giro can make it all the way to Milano. Or maybe, I don't know what they've said. Have they said anything, Benji, on how many stages has to happen to, for it to constitute a result? Can our boy Almeida actually actually win this? That is not defined at all by anyone. And Venue has said <laughs> today, the uh, RCS and Giro director, he said that they will only cancel the race or stop the race if the health uh, division of Italy tells them to. And otherwise they won't. And, um, well, we already knew from previous occasions that Veni is not really a driving force for safety in races, but I feel like he could show a bit more empathy in general about everything, since with the uh, Vinny Zabu crash, he was also directly defending that the barriers were well done and he was directly lawyering up. But this is honestly quite a excellent entree into our next race that we'll be talking about, because... We're speaking about COVID regarding Giro d'Italia, but in Gentwevelgem, we've also got a rider that is not riding Gentwevelgem because he was in a talk show with another rider that has COVID. So Jan Bakelons has contracted COVID in the last week or week and a half, whatever. And Tijbenot was in the same talk show with him together with Lotto Kopecky. And Sunweb has decided to take responsibility and take Tijbenot off their selection for Gentwevelgem. Unsure about Turaflanas and such yet. Is she out? Is Kopecky out too? I don't know. I haven't heard anything from Lotto Sudel. Because she'd obviously be a favourite for women's hand of Evelgen too. So, okay. I didn't know that about... I didn't know she was there too. I saw the stuff about Tej Benot. And obviously this is why, if you're a World Tour rider, skip all that talk show bullshit in-person stuff. Just come on the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast if you do an interview, you'll probably win a World Tour race, if not a Grand Tour race or stage in the 10 days following it, and you're not going to get exposed to anything talking to me and Benji via Zoom. But that, thanks, Benji, for reminding us. Hand again preview, men and women. Tomorrow is the, the race, and it's a stacked field. Uh, we're going to go through the main riders first. Uh, after we just I give a brief overview of the profile. Actually, no, I'm not going to do the overview of the profile. Benji's going to do that because it's from his, it's where he lives. And um, I know I do the names pretty well, but he might do them a little bit better than me. The start of Hindwebelgem is actually pretty close to where I live in Ypres. In general, it is a race that is often considered the cobble race that still has an opportunity of sprinters taking the actual victory here because the cobbles aren't really portrayed all over the parkour. There's only a section from about 130 kilometers from the line until a good a good 30-ish kilometers from the line that has hills and cobble sections all over. This race is 232 kilometers, so it is one of the longer races in the season. The climbs itself include the following. We start off with the Scherpenberg, 
de Videneberg, Baneberg, then we've got de Monteberg, and we go to the Kemmelberg, probably the real strike of the Spaco. I've done the Kemmelberg myself in my uh, in my uh, beautiful amateur cycling career, and um, yeah, that was uh, horrible. I died. So next section after those first hills, we go downwards a bit, and with about 60 kilometers left in the Spaco, we start three-ish cobble sections, and my beautiful profile does not show it at all i think it's actually not cobble sections i think it is the gravel sections the plug streets they called it we start with hill 63 then something called christmas or something and then the catacombs this is world war related because the race is called kent wevelgem in flanders fields flanders fields portraying the history of the world war one i think in this area then afterwards we go back to the same area where we ended up fighting on a bit earlier on the Kemmelberg and such. We do the Monteberg again, Kemmelberg, then the Scherpenberg, the Videneberg again, Baneberg, and then the Kemmelberg. And then we've got basically the last 30-ish kilometers being relatively flat, riding through the main port to Wevelgem. So very interesting parkour, a bit of a twist between the cobble races that can often be seen as a race that can be won by both cobblers if they smash it up the hills or also by sprinters if they survive and get through it and if that group can reform and remerge with the cobblers that went ahead at the front so i like this race it's a race that is often curious like i said between those two race racer types the rider types and therefore i feel like we need to look at mostly the riders that can do both and there's one rider we can't go around, Wout van Aert at Team Jumbo Visma. He was amazing all season already. I'm curious what his form is going to be for the next couple of weeks for the Cobble stages. Obviously, Paris Rubain not happening, but still a few opportunities. He's got a team surrounding him with Mike Turnison, Pascal Einkorn, Armand Grundal Janssen, Van der Horn, Timo Rosen, and Martin Wijnans. No, I think that's strong. I think that's a strong team. Yeah, I think so. Because Enkhorn's looked actually pretty good. Armand Grandal Janssen, I thought, was pretty solid as a road captain in Tour de France alongside Tony Martin. And if Turnison and Roussen are in decent form, I, I think that's pretty strong, to be honest. not It's not quick step, but I don't think... It's definitely not a weak team either. I agree with that. And I was looking at quick step indeed as being the team that has more leaders in general and just a broader team that can perform at a high level. We're speaking about Sam Bennett, Asgreen, Tim de Klerk, Lampard, Seneschal, Stibar, and Van Lederberg there. Van Lederberg will probably be the weaker one on paper, but he's not that terrible either. I'd put him on the same level as an Einkorn or a Wijnans, really, on the cobble sections. I'm curious what Einkorn's going to do on the cobble sections because I don't know if I've seen him on that yet. I think I've mainly seen him in hill sprints, and on hilly terrains, but he's probably pretty good at it. So that's going to be quite quite good. Are you expecting it to come down to a sprint, or do you feel like it might be in the favor of riders that focus on attacking on the cobble sections and such? Well, normally this race is in like March or something. It's really early in the calendar, and I think the, this race was literally about to happen the week of the races all being shut down because of COVID at the start of this year. So... I'll be interested to see how it goes at the start of October. As usual, the weather in Vavilchem tomorrow is like 13 degrees and 
or raining or showers and 18 k's an hour wind that's actually pretty good temperature normally it's like can be freezing for this race and it's can be freezing from loop so i think if there was a year that the sprinters were going to win it it would be this year and really the pure sprinters haven't won this race in the last 10 years christoph sagan van avermaet sagan Paulini in the 2015 edition, that was the crazy one, the Crosswind Chaos original video that made my channel go viral where they had that insane amount of wind and echelons. I don't think we'll see that tomorrow. 2014 Degenkolb, Sagan again, Bonin, Bonin, Bernie Isel. So it has favoured, I think, the Cobblers and the Classics men. Maybe Degenkolb you think is more of a sprinter, I guess. Uh, but you've got Bennett here tomorrow for quick step. And Caleb Ewan, I don't, I don't see Ewan winning at all for Lotto Sudal, to be honest. Um, I think Dagen Cobb's got a much better chance than him. I know it's un-Australian to me to say that. I think Bennett has an okay chance, actually, for Quickstep. And they've got a really strong team because if it's a hard race, if it's going hard in the cobbles, where they've got Lampard, they've got Asker and Seneschal, Stieber, who are looking good at... Uh, and then if it comes down to a bunch sprint, then they've probably got one of the two quickest men, and I doubt Ewan will even be there. So, I mean, apart from Mark Cavendish, obviously, he's got to be mentioned. Bennett probably is going to win that bunch, win that sprint if it comes down to it. Other strong teams, obviously UAE Emirates, they've got both Christoph and Jasper Philipson, as well as, as, well as uh, Marco Marcato, who is pretty good in these sort of races, actually. And... That, again, is a nice balance where if it comes down to a sprint at the end, Philipson, on the form he's been in, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be saying he can't win if he times it right. He's had his positioning pretty – he's had pretty good positioning recently. And Christoph, he won last year, and maybe it's a little bit too warm for him. Uh, other strong teams are, I think, EF Pro Cycling are kind of well-balanced. Sepp van Marke, Betiol, Kukulier has done well in this race before. I think Jonas Ruch, Langeveld, Tom Scully, they could go okay. Uh, Mitch and Scott have got Luca Menskets in good form if it comes down to a bunch sprint. But other than that, we've got to talk about Alperson Phoenix and Matthew van der Poel. And how do you think it's going to play out, Benji, between Matthew van der Poel tomorrow with... Melier, Rickert, and Yanni Vermeesh in that team as the main riders versus his real first battle with Wout van Aert in 2020 on the road. Like, how do you think it's going to play out? I think out? they're in a luxury position to have Van der Poel who can attack early on the cobble sections and Melier who can be in a golden throne in the crew behind, basically saying, well, I've got a guy up front, so I shouldn't be pacing right now. So I think they're going to play it like that, and it would be ideal for those Demerlier is not bad on the cobbles either, so I'm pretty sure he can survive the cobbles. Camelbetic is usually where Vanard tries to strike. I think he did it last year as well. And he was the strongest on that Camelbetic last year. But eventually it all came back together afterwards. So it's most likely for me going to come back together. And then it's going to depend on who has survived the cobble sections as sprinters and who is in the peloton that is storming towards the line to sprint for it i don't see a clear way of a rider or a smaller group just riding away unless every single team has someone at the front or maybe one team behind so that it's a bit of a battle but the break has the upper hand but i find it hard to believe that the teams like uae emirates 
Lotto Sudal potentially with Ewan and Dan Cole both. Heinrich Hausler, I'd like him to dial back the clock. Garcia Cortina and Colbrelli. I think Colbrelli could actually do pretty well tomorrow, as you said. But Ackerman here, uh, Trentin's not had a great 2020. I'll give you a little dark horse for a guy if he really stepped up a level. Two dark horses, in fact, for the win tomorrow, or for at least a good top five. Damien Touze, French rider for Covetus. I think he could do okay. Very unlikely, but... I wouldn't be surprised. Just put that name in your mind, Black looking maybe for two years from now. But a man who I do think is going to come top 10 tomorrow is Niels Echoff on Team Sunweb. He's he's like 200 to 1. Dainese, Case Bowler on that team, as well as Max Cantor and Nikias Arndt. they got a pretty strong sprint team. Do you think I'm out of my mind, Benji, and he's working for Case Bowl, or do you think he could actually be their protected rider tomorrow or get the chance to ride? I completely himself? agree with you. Nils Eikhoff is one of those riders that I've been saying every time this season that the moment he comes out of his shell and wins a race, that he's going to start winning more and more things. And he was already pretty good at Bing Bang Tour as well. I think he was slightly disappointing on the last Heroes Wedding stage. But then again, we can't expect him to just win every race the moment we say that he's a good talent. So I indeed expect him to be a valuable asset to Sunweb tomorrow. I don't know in what form. Maybe he's the rider that attacks with people on the couple sections and tries to keep Dainese and Bon a bit of a seed. Uh, Trexe Gafredo, Mes Pedersen. We had him being amazing at Bing Bang Tour with sprinting as well. He's got the cobbles as well. This is a perfect terrain for him to sprint as well. We spoke about Fanad Vanderpool, but Kent Wevelham might come down to a sprint, and I don't think Peterson will drop from a group at the front unless it's a very small group with Fanad and Vanderpool up there. But I believe that Peterson might be one of the really good riders that, at the end of the day, could take the victory at Kent Wevelham. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, they got a, you know, they got. Edward turns there, Sturvin. They probably got a stronger lead out in the finale if it does come down to a reduced bunch sprint. I think my, my pick to win is Wild Fun Art. But that being said, I think he's the most likely to win. That being said, I'm not going to be betting on him. The odds are so short. And I like Pedersen as a third favourite in that double digits. I'll be betting on just because maybe if it he can get into a breakaway and he can win from that, that option as well. But also... I'd like him head to head against Bennett at the end of a race like this. I'd be I'd be very happy with that scenario if you're a Mads Pedersen fan and even beating Vanderpool. Um Pedersen's got legit power and he's a legitimate sprinter. So yeah, I like him for tomorrow. He looked okay in Brabanji Pale, but maybe the climbs are a little bit too long for him. That won't be the case tomorrow. And yeah, Neil Zekoff I really like as a dark horse too. Ineos Grenadiers have got a pretty experienced team with Dole and then the youngster hater Christian Nice. Lawless Moscon, who's been absent from racing for like months. <laughs> I think this is, is this his first race since lockdown or something? Luke Rowe, the vet, Dylan Van Baal and Kwiatkowski. I'm more interested to see what Ethan Hater does out of that, um, does in that team. And I hope, I don't think the weather's bad enough, but it'd be great to see Luke Rowe freed and go for a flyer for himself tomorrow. The last sort of favourite I'll mention is Stefan Kung. Again, he has to win from a breakaway or a reduced group and then try and go clear on his own because he's not winning a reduced uh, bunch sprint, I don't think, although he's kind of he's pretty good, I guess. Oh, no, he wasn't. Trentin and 
Pedersen dusted him last year. But that's Henvevelkem from my perspective. Who's your pick for the win tomorrow, Ben? I think I'm going to evade both Van Aert and Van der Poel. And I'm going to say Mess Pedersen. Although I most likely think it's going to be Van Aert, I'm still calling Pedersen for this one. Better, better to be right when you've picked a long shot. You seem a lot smarter. Uh, if you pick well Van Aert and you're correct, no one gives you any credit. That's what I've found. Um, which kind of counterintuitive. But onto the women's race, we don't know. One of the favourites, Lotta Kopecky, uh, whether she'll be racing, whether she gets given the same treatment as Tash Benoit. Previous winners of the women's edition have been Kirsten Ville, the veteran sprinter, Marta Bastianelli, same veteran sprinter, Lotta Hentala, Chantal Vandenbroek, Florchi Mackay and Lauren Hall. Tomorrow we've got a pretty strong sprint lineup. We've got Bastianelli again. Kirsten Vild. We've got obviously Lorana, Lorana Viebs. Um, she should be the favourite, and I think would be. I can't find any betting markets. Um, yeah, she, I think, is. she got a pretty strong team with Corinne Rivera, Jackson, Florty Mackay, Liana Lippert. If it comes down to a reduced bunch sprint, she, I think, she'll be beating Kirsten Vild, unless she messes something up. Lorana Veebs is the strongest female sprinter in my view. Lizzie Diagnon's here with Lisa uh, Longo Borghini for Trek Segafredo. They can't, They haven't brought uh, Letizia Paternotsta, who the young Italian rider. Now, she's come third, I think. She came third last year. She's like 21, and she's a good track rider. You might have seen her on IG. And, yeah, she came third behind Kirsten Vild last year. I don't know why she's not on the start list. Um, and that was last year when she was like 20. So, yeah, she if it comes down to a sprint, I thought she would have been doing – it would have been up there, especially as maybe Audrey called on her a go. They're saying the race for her. Other riders that got to be mentioned is Julian Dorr. She's, I think, come on the podium a couple of times. Bulls Dolmans, she'll be their leader unless Amy Peters can get in a breakaway. Emily Diedrichsen, she's only 24 years old. She won World Champs Road Race in a sprint, I think, beating – uh, Kirsten Vild, who the Netherlands had worked for all day and let out. And Diedrichsen beat her when she was 20. And last two years, I'm not sure what's happened. Sorry if I've missed like an injury or a sickness or something. If I don't mean to um, be trashing her or anything, but her results haven't been very good. And this is the sort of race I would have been expecting her to be coming in the top five consistently in. And I don't really expect that tomorrow, despite her being the talent she should have had sprinting. Chloe Hosking, the Australian, if it comes down to a sprint for rally cycling, she's got a pretty strong kick. But I don't know. It's hard to say what will happen and how this race will shape up because you've got good time trialers like Emilia Farlin, etc., who should be trying to make this a long ranger, as well as like Ellen Van Dyke or Longa Borghini, etc., and Lizzie Diagman from Trek. Like they should be attacking those two, Diagman and Longa Borghini. Same with Lippert, really. And for Sunweb. And if I'm Sunweb, I'd be doing exactly what you mentioned Benji Sunweb should do in the men's. Send Lippert, Mackay, who's won this race already, up the road. And then you've got Rivera protecting Veebs. Rivera's got a pretty good sprint. She won her on the Von Vlaanderen, um, although there's not much draft behind her. And then the same way they'd have Erkhoff attacking on the cobbles and then leaving it behind for Dainese and Case Bowl sitting in. So I'd do that and have Lorena Reeves and then them not having to chase and then having those two strong riders, Lippert and Mackay up the road. 
Grace Brown for Mitchelton Scott's got to be mentioned after her performances at Flesh uh, and Liège Best on Liège. No, not Flesh. Uh, Liège Best on Liège. And what was the other one? Brabantia Power, she won uh, this week. So she's got to be mentioned. She'll be the leader for Mitchelton Scott. And I'll just check. I haven't missed any of the favourites there for you. You've got, ooh, yeah, I think they're the main favourites. Maybe Lisa Brenauer. She's looked okay for um, Ketotit WNT Pro Cycling, but I think she'll be on lead out duties, to be honest, for Kirsten Vild. And I should have said the what the profile looks like. Sorry, it's 145Ks from Eep to Vavelgem, and it's the same climbs, same everything, same finale, just it doesn't have as long a flatter section at the start. So a nice little profile, and thank you to Flanders Classics for having the women's race on the same day, same profile, same name, etc. Benji mentioned that in the flesh pod where I wasn't able to join him, that that's important, and I think, yeah, hats off to, I think Flanders Classics who own this race. Sorry if I'm miscrediting. Um the actual owner of this race. But, yeah, who do you think – who are your favourites, Benji, for this race? And have I missed anyone in Personally, I would go ahead and kind of complete you on the assessment that Sunweb is indeed the team that I feel has the most to offer here, both in attacking and in sprinting. They can put each other in, in golden seats and basically use the cards wisely, having someone in the group behind, but also in the front and – using that to their advantage. And I believe that the winner is going to come outside of that corner, out of the Sunweb team. So I'm saying potentially, hmm, I think it's going to be with us. And uh, yeah, I'm going to put my cards on that. Yeah, I think it will be too. I think Lippitz likes the climbs a little bit harder, like the way she won Cadell's. That was a really steep climb. And and Vavelgem doesn't really have that, to be honest. So I, I think it will come down to a sprint and Vivas will win. I think Kirsten Bills another year, maybe the team's a little bit weaker. I don't really see it. So that should be a pretty good race for the women's tomorrow. I'm not sure what the times are. Both of them will be televised. Brabantia Pale was televised uh, pretty much in full from start to finish. So you can check out the women's race in full, I believe. I might even try and get a, an interview out of the men and women's races, if we've got time. We, we've been pretty flat out at the moment with the Giro and all these other races, so we haven't been trying to do spicy things like that. We're just trying to get through it. But, yeah, that's our picks for tomorrow. I'm picking... Uh, I'm picking Veebs too. I'm going to go with the simple option. Now on to the other race that's on. It's not a World Tour race. It's a One Pro Parry Tour Elite 213Ks from Chartres to Tour, and it's... I don't know if it's a cobbled race or whether it's got kind of like dusty, not great road surface sections. I can't remember <laughs> what exactly it has. Um, kind of like Britannia Classic. But yeah, 213Ks, pretty flat for the first part, then a little climb, about 65Ks in. And then kind of like Hen Vavel came the last, from 162Ks in to 200Ks in, punchy climbs. 1K, 4.2%, 700 metres, 7%, 700 metres, 5%. There's about well, one, two, three, like eight or nine of them. and But then it's a flat run into the finish. So the last, I'd say, 12 kilometres, 11 kilometres, it's pretty much flat into the finish. That's the And I will that mean that uh, no one's going to be able to get a big enough gap over the top of that last climb to really make the difference into the finish. 
previous winners have been though breakaway artists, a lot of them. Yellow Velais last year, Soren Kara Anderson, Benji's Idol in 2018, Trentin, but then Sprinters, Gavidia 2016, Trenton again in 15, Yellow Velais 2014, Degenkolb Marcato, who is racing for UAE, by the way, tomorrow in Henvelchem. He won in 2012. Then Dan Avermaet and Oscar Freire. Who are the favourites for this race, Benji? And you're stronger than at this than me because there's a lot of pro-conti teams here that make up the bulk of the, the riders contesting. Firstly, the, the parkour is more gravelish than anything, I'd say. If I look at the history of the last few years, Yellow Allies was riding away on gravel sections from the others and so forth. So I'd count it more towards a race like that than towards an actual cobble race. But I feel the favorites for this are pretty similar. We've got, first of all, Søren Anderson. He's still not my favorite, but you can keep saying it and trying to force it in. <laughs> Søren Anderson is probably one of the riders I'd put very high up this list because... He is the world tour rider that has it to offer here. Because if we look at Jens Wevelhem's start list compared to this, these races are usually very differently situated in the calendar. Jens Wevelhem in March and Paritou, I think, in October or September, whatever. And because of that, the start list of Paritour is heavily damaged and has way less top riders than you'd usually expect. And because of that, You've got Søren Anderson just miles above the rest with only a few riders surrounding him on a world tour level, I'd say. When I look at the start list, we see that Algezera is at the start here together with Roman Bardet, Benoit Cosnefroy. I think that both those riders might be underrated for this terrain. Bardet has done cyclocross in his career and I think last year at the end of the year as well. So he knows how to roughly ride these sections. I just don't know what his history is in Paritour. And I think he doesn't have a big history in Paritour as well. So, yeah, I can't find any Paritour result in the last few years where he has ridden it. So it's hard to judge him based on that. So I'm going to have to guess that they'd be riding more likely for Benoit Cosnefoy here, who was pretty great, if not amazing, at the Brabant Appel and looking like he might be able to offer something here. But then again, Clément Venturini. Same story, cyclocross and I think mountain bike as well in his life. So he has stuff to offer here. And I believe that Venturini, if it comes down to a smaller group, potentially a sprint could take it. But I feel like it's going to be decided before that. So many attacking riders, Dries de Bonde, Alpes and Phoenix. And then we'd go to a Gupama who doesn't have all out leaders here and looks like they've got more of a hill team when it comes to the race Madua, Mola. so it's very odd to see these teams here we've got Kofidis with only five riders at the start here and they're not their best riders so I'm curious what that's going to be to offer is that even allowed five riders at the start here because it's their confirmed team it's so surprising uh, it's only a one pro though I don't know how many they're supposed to send I've got also Nipodelko with Girmai at the start you can talk about Girmay here because uh, I know that that's one of your favorite youngsters in the professional scene of cycling. Yeah, but he likes a bit more of a climb. I know there are some punchy climbs. This will be the one race where I don't pick him for a top 10. I think he'll come top 10. Um, I think he's a quality rider, but I don't know whether they're going to be riding for Grosu. Grosu is their Romanian sprinter, and he's a pretty solid rider for Nipodoko Provence. 
I'm not sure what will happen. But yeah, look out for Biniemka Mai tomorrow. Another pick, obviously, is uh, Lorenzo Manza for Total Direct Energy. I think he got a few tidy top 10s in Tour de France bunch sprints. So if it comes down to a bunch sprint, there's not much sprint power here, to be honest. Uh, if it does come down to that, you've got like Sasha Modelo or I don't even know, Brian Cockard, I guess, for B&B Hotels. He'd probably be the best pure sprinter on the start list if I'm not missing anybody. But as Benji said, there's a lot of attacking teams here who, sorry, it won't be Cockard. Nasa Buani is the strongest sprinter here uh, for RK Samzik. But Circus Wanti are one of those attacking teams that Benji mentioned. Flee of Leeken, Emre Hent, you uh, expect to be seeing them going up the road. So I don't think it's going to come down to a bunch sprint. It's because of so many teams, Madawa, etc. for FDJ, wanting to get up the road. Wouldn't it be great to see William Bonnet getting a, winning a race like this? But <laughs> I don't see it happening, the veteran for uh, Groupana, FDJ. But yeah, that's my pick for tomorrow. I don't know yet. I'll think of it while Benji gives his pick and I put him on the spot. It would be too easy to say Søren Kronersen. I would say, so I'm going to go and follow my Belgian heart, and I think Emmet de Gens is going to come out on top at Paris Tour because he's been very promising all season. He had a second place at the third stage, fourth stage actually, at the Tour of Luxembourg, seventh on the stage after that. We saw at the start of the season that he got second in Samer, very similar race in the sense that it's not overly masked up by cobbles or gravel sections. It's a bit in between, and I think by two is as well, because it can often lead to sprinters winning. So I'm saying aim it again. I feel like this is a race where you can break through, and hopefully it ends up happening. I think if it comes down to a bunch sprint, bunch sprint, it's going to be Buani pretty comfortably. Obviously, Soren Kranison from a break is, yeah, you can't go past that. Johan LeBon, Actually, from from a break as well for B&B Hotels, Vital Concept. Um, he's actually won a World Tour race in his career. But, yeah, I'm kind of confusing myself now, talking about random dark horses for the win. Uh, I'm going to go with Therese de Bont. It's my pick, and I'm not sure how he'll win, but I think he'll get it done. They pulled him out of the other big races, and he's going to be the main man here for Alpes and Phoenix. He's not going to be supporting NVDP at Handwebelgem. But this was the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. Our Giro Stage 8 recap brought to you in partnership with Lacole. Thanks as always to them. You can check them out in the show notes or the YouTube video de- uh, description, as well as our Hen Vevelhem and Parry Tour preview shows. I think we went into pretty good detail there. I'm pretty happy with uh, how we reviewed that, previewed those races. We've got Vuelta Espana preview coming up pretty shortly as that race is. It's coming up so soon in the middle of the Giro d'Italia. And if you do like the podcast, all we ask as well is give us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference and helps out a lot. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.